please uh, turn your Bibles to Micah. Micah is right after the book of Jonah, in the same section we've, we've been in the last couple weeks. And we're going to look at Matthew and, and Micah this morning, mainly Micah, but this passage that we're looking at in Micah is quoted in the book of Matthew as, as we see the chief priests and scribes talking about Bethlehem and the city in which the Messiah would be born. As, as you turn there, I just want to invite you to come back on Tuesday evening at 6 for our Christmas Eve service. We hope you are able to come and, and join with us for that. It's always a, a wonderful time to kind of come together as, as a church family and as, as families and individuals and, and just think about the Lord and God incarnate come in the flesh, God with us, God Emmanuel, and, and, and to be able to prepare our hearts uh, to rightly celebrate Christmas the next day. It's always very encouraging for me, for my family, as we kind of come into the Christmas day by, by uh, worshiping God on Christmas Eve. It's always a very sweet family service, so I encourage you to come out for that on Tuesday, Christmas Eve at, at 6 p.m. here in this room. And it'll be be a little bit, uh, it's always a little bit chaotic. We, everybody's in here, there's no child care, and we just come and come as you are, and it's a, it's a sweet, sweet time of, of singing together and, and uh, contemplating God Emmanuel. Micah chapter 5, if uh, you would stand with me, if you're able, as we read these words together. Micah chapter 5, I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version, and this is what the word of the Lord is to the people in Judah in 701 B.C. Uh, through the prophet Micah and God's word to us today as well. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for his name shall be great. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. May you be encouraged through God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray as we continue our time of, of worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that you have spoken to us. And we would ask for your grace as we apply them. We pray for us this week as we consider uh, the joy of, of knowing you and being obedient to you and worshiping you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. There were two times a year growing up that I generally see my dad's parents, Grandma and Grandpa Bennett. Uh, one was in the summer, and the other was around Christmas. And our summer trip, we'd all pile into the, the car there in Texas, and we'd, we'd drive up to Arkansas, and we'd spend a, a weekend with Grandma and Grandpa. And then Mom and Dad and my younger siblings would hop back in the car, and they'd go back to, to Texas, but often I'd stay for a week there in Arkansas, and then I'd make my way back home, and I don't, I don't remember how I got home, hitchhiking or something like that, but I'd, I'd spend the week with Grandma and Grandpa. Well, I can remember one week, I was about 10 or 11 years old, and was staying with Grandma and Grandpa, and Grandma realized that 10 or 11 is a little bit too old to be tucked into bed at night, and so she decided to give me a little bit of, of space. You know, she wasn't going to come in our room and tuck me into bed each night, but what she didn't realize is that, yeah, 10 and 11 is a little old to be tucked in, but it's a little young to just be left on your own in a room, and so I, I didn't do that well. I, 
I would, would go to the lake and swim and then come back and just kind of throw my swim trunks there on the carpet and we'd play on the beach and I'd just kind of take my sandy shirt and throw it on the floor and I'd, I'd bring, you know, Grandma loves to give food and so I'd just take the food and wander into my room and eat some of it, leave some of it under the bed. Cups and glasses made their way into that room and uh, toys just kind of went out of my bag all over the room. By the end of the week, the room did not look that great or smell that wonderful either, for that matter. And Grandma, who had kind of stayed out of the room all week, no reason to be in there, the day that I was to leave, she came in to help me pack, to tell me it was time to go, and looked around the room and was shocked. There were lots of will-I-nevers and uh, land's sake and for goodness sake, and a lot of sakes and things like that, which was my grandmother's way of expressing displeasure. It doesn't sound that bad, but what you have to understand is that I was the oldest grandchild of the second generation of grandchildren, and I was, I was kind of a favorite of grandma's. Uh, displeasure was something that she expressed to the cousins or to my younger siblings, but, but certainly not to me, the, the favorite grandchild. And so I was very shocked and dismayed at my grandmother's reaction to me. So as we kind of packed things up, and she's kind of talking about, you know, can't believe a little boy would such and such and do this. I was just very discouraged. And that was our last conversation before I, you know, hitchhiked my way back to Texas. And so I didn't get, you know, we didn't get a, a lot of closure there. And as I was back in Texas over the next few months, I, I wondered, have I ruined it, you know? Have I ruined my relationship with Grandma? I mean, Grandma was kind of the gravy train, and you know, a lot of gifts coming from that direction, and have, have I ruined it, you know, as, as, as I lost that special place in Grandma's heart, and wondering about that the next few months. Well, a few months later, we, we had this trip scheduled to see her again. She's going to come to Dallas and stay with my aunt and uncle, and I can remember us driving to my aunt and uncle's house, and we went in the front door, and we went into the hallway, and then the rest of the family kind of went into the living room and into the kitchen where grandma and grandpa were, but I kind of hung back and slowly kind of made my way toward the kitchen, wondering what sort of reception I would receive, and grandma responded perfectly. You see, if, if she had been a little bit too glad to see me, I would have recognized that she was overcompensating. And if she had been distant toward me, I would realize, oh, she's still mad. But she greeted me the same way that she'd always greeted me, just so happy to see me, hug and the kisses and all of those, I guess I wasn't too old for kisses, and all those sorts of things that a good grandmother bestows upon her favorite grandson. She was still excited about me, and I realized that my relationship with my grandma was not based upon a single incident or single failure on my part. In fact, as, as Grandma greeted me, I realized that she had probably totally forgotten about the incident. And, and it wasn't the Alzheimer's. It was just, you know, she had, it wasn't even in her mind. Her love for me was, was, was based upon me being her grandchild, and there was an unconditional love that Grandma had for me. I hope that you have been able to experience that type of love in your life. The unconditional love of someone whom you've wronged. A person who, as they, as they love you, you realize their love for me is not based upon some moment in our relationship. It's not based upon something that I've, I've done wrong or their feelings for me aren't based upon one or two moments in our relationship, even if, even if I've injured them greatly, that our relationship isn't based upon that, but there's an unconditional love that they have for me that, that supersedes, that covers any, anything that I've done that's wrong to them. It's a beautiful thing. Let me take a couple of guesses this morning. <laughs> My guess is that some of you this morning need to be reminded about God's love for you. That God's love for you is not based upon some moments or God's displeasure with you. It's not 
based upon just a couple moments where you've, you've done something and, and because of that moment in your life, now God no longer loves you. That, but that's not how God's relationship with you works. Some of you need to be reminded this morning about the gospel. That God's love for you, God's unconditional, unfailing, unchanging love for you is based upon the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that God's love for you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and received Christ's righteousness through that faith, that love, that love will never change. And some of you this morning are discouraged about your relationship with God, and, and some of you, my guess is, need to be reminded that God, God's love for you has not faltered. You need to be reminded what the basis of God's love is, the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I have another guess this morning. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Some of you have a tough week ahead of you. <laughs> some of you are going to have a difficult week with some people that God is going to bring into your life over the Christmas week. Some of you may be with some difficult people this morning. I don't know, looking at some of the families that are here. Uh, some of you may have already begun your difficult week. Some of you may have had a difficult morning. And what you need to be reminded of is, is you need to be reminded as, as you think about God's love for you and God's unfailing love for you and, and, and the type of love that God has for you, you need to be reminded that God has called you to love others in that way as well. And if you do not love others in that way, it indicates that you have not understood the gospel and God's love for you. If you did understand that love, you would be demonstrating that love to others because this week and in weeks to come and months to come and years to come you are going to be brought into contact with people who have wronged you who have displeased you who have done things have said things or not said things that they should have and and because of that there is some some temptation in your heart to not treat them the way that God would have you treat them and so the challenge for you this week is to demonstrate the love to others that you have received from God. I want us to look at Micah. But before we look at Micah, let me remind you a little bit of the context we find in the New Testament as we see Micah quoted, Micah chapter 5. So we're going to look at Micah chapter 5 in a moment, but let me read to you a little bit from Matthew chapter 2. And this is the story in Matthew chapter 2. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because I'm going to assume you've heard the story of the wise men who visit King Herod before. But in Matthew chapter 2, we encounter, as we think about the birth of Jesus, we encounter this, this story of the wise men. It says in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is not excited about the idea of a competitor to the throne, and he's troubled. And whenever Herod gets troubled, everybody gets troubled. He assembles, verse 4, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. We know from the story that we read there in Matthew chapter 2 that Herod had no intention of worshiping Jesus, the Christ. It's a sad story there in Matthew chapter 5, the false worship of, of Herod. And there's many things we could ask about the story. One of the stories, the questions that I've had from the story is, as I've read it, one of the things that's bothered me about the story is, is the chief priests and scribes' reaction. It's interesting to me that they understood the geography, but not the theology. 
Herod's able to ask them, where is the Messiah, the Christ, going to be born? And they're able to give him a, a geographical answer. They, they're able to know Micah chapter 5, verse 2, well enough to say, well, here's the, the physical location. It's in Bethlehem. They're able to, to give him that geographical understanding. But it's interesting to me that they don't understand the theology, or they don't ask the hard questions of the theology of the passage. What type of king is this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2? To me, that seems like a really important question. It seems to me very important if I was a person who understood the word well enough to know the location of the Messiah that I'd want to look at Matthew cha- or Micah chapter 5 more closely and find out a little bit about the character of the Messiah. Who is this guy and, and what type of king will he be? Because quite honestly, it doesn't take a very good king to be better than Herod. The chief priests and scribes, the text gives us no indication that they ask the important questions of Micah 5. So what I want us to do this morning is to ask some Christmas questions of Micah chapter 5, some questions that I believe will help us this week as we celebrate Christmas and in the weeks ahead will help us understand God's love for us and help us demonstrate that love to others. Here's the first Christmas question for us as we come to Micah chapter 5. And that first question is, who does God love? Who does God love? And what we're going to see from the first two verses of Micah chapter 5 is that God loves at least three groups of people. He loves the desperate, he loves the weak, and he loves the undeserving. Look at verse 1 with me. And we see in Micah chapter 5 verse 1 that God loves the desperate. Micah writes, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, what is Micah talking about there? Well, he's writing these words in, about events that take place in 701 B.C. In 701 B.C., the nation of Judah is being attacked by the Assyrian Empire. In fact, you can find these events in 2 Kings chapter 18 and following. I'm going to turn there and read a little bit from 2 Kings 18 and give you a sense of the desperate situation the people in Judah find themselves in. The Assyrian Empire has already come and carried away the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom has been decimated. And then in 2 Kings chapter 18, we, we read about Assyria attacking the southern kingdom. And King Hezekiah is king of the southern kingdom, king of Judah at this time. He has aligned himself with the Egyptians, trying to protect himself from Assyria and trying to rebel against the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians are not too happy about that. And so the Assyrians come. Hezekiah tries to to buy them off. He gathers all the silver from the temple and he, he gives it to them. And they take it and say, thank you very much. We think we shall stay. And Hezekiah as he strips the gold from the doors of the temple and, and all the things from the, the temple and gives it to the king of Assyria, he realizes that he is in a desperate state. And there's a siege that's laid against Jerusalem. They come up against Jerusalem in chapter 18 here. And then one of the representatives of the king of Assyria comes and shouts to the people in Jerusalem. And the people who are on the wall can hear it. And this is what the representative of the king of Assyria says the people on the wall, a message to take back to Hezekiah, and it's a word, it's, these are words of, of taunting. Listen to what this guy says beginning in verse 19. This is 2 Kings 18, verse 19. Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? You're trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So if you're trusting in Pharaoh, good luck with that. But if you say we're trusting in God, verse 22, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to put, on your part, riders on them. 
How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? The Assyrians were a fierce people. Notice they mock Hezekiah for these words that he calls a strategy and and doesn't have strategy and power for war. The Assyrians were mighty in war and they were were very strategic in their warfare. They could fight you on, on a multitude of different types of terrain and one of their favorite tactics to employ if they had trouble getting into a city was was to just lay siege to it and it was not an unusual thing for the inhabitants of a city that the Assyrians were sieging to slowly starve to death the Assyrians had seen it time and time again but the Assyrians were not just mighty in warfare in terms of the physical and the, the tactical side of it they were also masters at psychological warfare, at terror tactics. In fact, later, listen to what happens as, as they're saying these things. The, the people on the wall say, hey, 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 please talk to us in Aramaic because other people can hear what you're saying in Hebrew. And so speak to us in Aramaic so the people can't hear. And listen to how the guy responds. He says, look, the, this Assyrian says, look, does, do they want me just to speak Does my master want me just to speak to you guys? No. He also wants me to speak to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine. You guys are going to slowly starve to death. And everybody needs to know it. The Assyrians would employ terror tactics. and, And a person would know that if they fell into disfavor with the Assyrians, that the Assyrians would be ruthless. They would line up their prisoners and they would randomly maim different ones of them. They'd cut off fingers and gouge out eyes and, and different limbs and they would take some and they'd just burn them alive and, and other people they'd, they'd hook and other people they would literally uh, flay them. They'd, they'd skin them alive and they'd take the skins of their enemies and display them on the walls of their palace. I mean, these guys were ruthless and everybody In the city of Jerusalem, as the Assyrians come and lay siege to it, everybody knows we're toast. These guys are not nice guys. These guys are fearsome. They're mighty warriors. There's nothing we can do. And the Assyrians are taunting them. They're saying, look, we'll give you 2,000 horses. You guys, we we have 2,000 horses to spare, and you can't even put people on the horses we're giving you. You guys got nothing. And it says, as you come to the end of chapter 18, that Elkanah, or, uh, Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, all come to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and ter- tell him these words. And Hezekiah, in the next chapter, hears these words, and he tears his clothes and covers himself with sackcloth and goes into the house of the Lord. Bottom line, bottom line, who are these people that Micah is writing to in verse 1 as he talks about this siege, as he talks about a a ruler, a judge receiving a a strike on the cheek, being, being shamed? Who is he talking to? He's talking to the desperate. He's talking to the desperate. Look at verse 2. We see that not only are they desperate, they're, they're also weak. He, God not only loves the desperate, he also loves those who are weak. And he talks about this, this weak little town of Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and Ephrathah means, means fruitful. You see it in Genesis 48, as Bethlehem is referred to, to fruit, as fruitful. But you, O Bethlehem, are, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from, from old, from ancient of days. There's this, there's this coming ruler from you that's been prophesied since the time of David, these ancient times, and he's going to be part of this Davidic line, God keeping the Davidic covenant that he's made, the promise he's made with David. And even from before that, God's plan in eternity past, there's a, a special relationship that God has with his people, and he's going to bestow special honor and favor on this little town called Bethlehem. God loves the desperate, 
And God loves the weak. Now, is that still the case? Does God still love the desperate and the weak? And the answer, of course, is is absolutely. In fact, if we do not understand that we are the desperate and the weak, we have a a hard time understanding our relationship with God. Uh, Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2 that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were talking about how we, we walked according to the course of this world, to the powers of this world. We were, we were dead in trespasses and sins. In 1 Corinthians, Paul would, would talk about God's, God's grace upon those who are, who are weak and those who are desperate. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is, is writing and he says this. He says in verse 26, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." We cannot rightly understand our relationship with God and and who God is and and who he loves without understanding that we are the desperate and the weak. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2 here in in Micah 5. But there's one other word that I've I've chosen to to put here as we talk about who God loves, and that word is undeserving. Undeserving. See, there's some things that I've left out in the story so far. You'll notice I just kind of jumped in there to Micah chapter 5 a little bit, but there's some other things that are taking place in the book of Micah that let us know that it's no accident the people in Judah have arrived at the situation they find themselves in. I mean, it's not like these people in Judah are like the super godly people and they're, they're obeying God and they're living in righteous lives and then all of a sudden the Assyrians come and, and these are just good people that a bad thing is happening to. That's not the case. In the book of Micah, we see that that God is dealing with disobedient people. The times that Micah is writing in have been times before now of of relative economic prosperity. The people, until the time the Assyrians come, have been doing well, and there have been a time of of great material wealth, and instead of recognizing what God would have them do in times of economic blessing, the people in Israel and the people in Judah here that Mike is writing to have, have acted very sinfully. Materialism has corrupted their, their souls. It's interesting, as we think about our own uh, economic climate, there are some of us that tend to fall into the, what you'd call the, the, the uh, more conservative side of, of economic theory. Some of us are more liberal in terms of what we believe about the economy. And, and, and what's interesting is how all human understanding of, of economic things and all economic systems that, that human beings kind of create for themselves fail, right, and reflect sinful tendencies. I was listening to a, a person this last week who's, uh, who had advised some uh, various people, various, uh, I think it worked with the Pope and different, uh, different people throughout the world in terms of helping people understand uh, the economy and, and how to help impoverished people. And he, he had a statement that I think is very interesting and, and, and is true. He talks about how uh, an economy, a, a just economy, demands some sort of moral framework. There needs to be morality that, that accompanies our belief of, of economy, of economics. And God, as he talks to the people here in Micah, we see that, that everybody, from whatever different class you are, whatever you, wherever you find yourself, has failed to, to handle material things as God would have them. So he begins in verse 1 of chapter 2, talking to the powerful, those who are wealthy. And he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil in their beds. When the morning dawns, they, they perform it. So it's kind of like they're dreaming of bad things to do. In the morning, they're like, 
obsessed with material things and, and they, they think of an idea of how they can achieve more materialism and so then they wake up and they do it. They do it because they have the power to do it, verse 1. It's in the power of their hands. They, they want something. They covet fields, and so they seize them. They want a house, and so they, they take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. And so these people who have power, instead of being mindful of the needs of the weak, are living these lives of, of constant consumption. And so God is displeased with the powerful with those who have access to large amounts of wealth and instead of being mindful of the plight of those who are impoverished, simply consume more. Well, are are the poor righteous and upright? Hardly. Verse 8, Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. And so there's this this oppression of, of, there's violence done to those who are wealthy as well. And so both the poor and the wealthy, all different classes of society are 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 behaving sinfully as they think about material possessions. This very powerful line that he says in verse 11 of Micah chapter 2. He describes the preacher of this culture, the the preacher that that this culture would listen to. He says, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, in other words, say empty, untruthful things, saying things like, I'm going to preach to you of wine and strong drink, that, that man would be the preacher for this people. The type of preacher that this materialistic culture would, would find appealing is going to be a, a preacher who, who preaches sensuality and materialism and debauchery. You come to chapter 3 and he continues this lawsuit against his people. He says, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You hate the good, you love the evil, you tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. You eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them. You break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Not a very pleasant picture here of the people that God shows us. So that's it, right? That's it. These guys are a bunch of jerks. So God turns them over and says, I'm done with you, right? No. There is discipline, judgment for their sin. But listen to what else there is. There's still love. In fact, look at Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Micah says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God loves the undeserving. And so he's going to give them something. You know, I, I think you can learn a lot by someone by watching how they give. This Christmas, who you give to and, and what you give is going to say a lot about you. My daughter, Ellie, is a giver. You know, she, she loves to write notes and, and give gifts and pictures to people. And this, this last week, she sent Whitney like a little email or she found some, somehow she emailed Whitney or, or sent her a text or something and said, uh, you know, I love you, mom, and you're the, the greatest mom ever. So I heard about that. I think I was with Whitney at the time or something. She showed it to me. I'm looking at my phone, waiting. You know. There's my greatest dad ever. Later, we're, we're talking about it, and, and uh, I find out that my omission was intentional. Ellie had reached the conclusion that I wasn't the greatest dad ever. That was God, which I agree with, but still, dad, you're a really good dad, number, number two dad, I mean, something like that. But Ellie loves, it says a lot about Ellie. Her gifts are intentional, they're sweet, they're thoughtful. I learn a lot about my daughter by what she gives. Whenever I was on staff at uh, Bethany Baptist Church in Peoria, uh, Pastor Rich would, would, would give me uh, birthday gifts. And I remember one year, 
he gave me a University of Texas Longhorns cap, which I, you know, I had never told him I liked the University of Texas or anything, but I, I realized it's, as he gave me that hat, he, he thinks of me as a person from Texas. Like, okay, that's, that's great. For, you know, I think, uh, I think we were, that weekend we were on a, so, we're so, so I had that hat and I just put it somewhere. And next year comes around, next year, birthday again, and Rich says, hey, I have a gift for you. All right. He gives me, I'm not kidding, the exact same hat. I was like, well, I thought he was messing with me. I was like, Rich, you, you know that I didn't want to say I already have this. He goes, well, what's wrong? You don't look as excited. And I said, well, and I pulled out the other hat. I go, well, you gave me the exact same hat last year. And I, I found out Rich thinks of me as a guy from Texas who likes hats. I mean, I, I know I know something about Rich on the basis of the gifts that he gives. He's thoughtful, but, but not diverse in his thinking, I guess. Like, oh, yeah, you learn something about the giver by the gifts they give. And, and what do you learn about God here? Well, God loves you, and, and God loves the, the desperate. God loves the weak. God loves the, the undeserving. You learn about his grace and his care and his love. And by the way, Unless you understand who you are, you can't understand who God is. Unless you understand that you are the desperate, the weak, the undeserving, you're not going to be in a position, this is crucial, you're not going to be in a position to receive the love of God. Remember the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the Gospel of Luke? I think it's Luke 18. The Pharisee is self-righteous and thanks God that he's not like the tax collector. And what does the tax collector do? The tax collector understands who he is and just says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you do not understand that you are the desperate, the weak, and the undeserving, you are not going to be in a position to receive the love of God. And by the way, if you do not understand who you are and understand the gospel and the good news found in the person of Jesus Christ, you are not going to be in a position to love others as God has called you to love. This week, God is going to place you in situations, again, where, where you're going to be around people who have wronged you deeply. Think, people have said things to you. People have done things to you. People have, have not done what they should have done. There are things that people have done that have wounded you deeply. And unless you understand the gift that you have received and who you are, you are not going to see them in the proper light. Who does God love? God loves the desperate, the weak, the undeserving. Here's the second question question I want us to look at. How does God love us? How is God's love displayed? And what we see here in verses 3 through 6 is that God loves us by giving us the shepherd king, Jesus Christ. Again, I think about Matthew chapter 2 and the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and you just wonder, the chief priests and the scribes, did they, did they even read the passages accompanying verse 2? As you look at this demonstration of God's love, you see not only who God loves, but the way that he loves them, and you, you think, who would not want to receive this king? Uh, thinking again about uh, my gift giving with Rich, um, he didn't just give me gifts. I gave him gifts as well. And one, one Christmas, it was December of, um, I'm not exactly sure, but it says December of 2004. So I, I gave him a gift. It was a gift that you had to, to redeem as some sort of uh, internet thing. And so uh, I was really excited about this. I gave it to him in December, and, and he seemed excited about it as well. And the rest of the year, you know, the year ends, and then 2005 comes along, and around the end of November of 2005, I got an email from this place, and it said, you know, you gave this gift, and they haven't redeemed it. Went in to Rich's office, and hey, Rich, let me sell you again on this amazing gift I got you. I, I want you to understand how cool this thing is. And so, you know, I'm, I'm telling him about how great it is, and, and okay, okay, I'll, and, you know, he took it, right? S sometimes... Sometimes you think about the gifts that you give, and, and you want people to, to understand how, how wonderful these, these gifts are. And you give someone a gift, and they're just kind of, eh. and you want to say, it's a real diamond. I mean, like, this is cool. This is a good thing. I mean, listen to this gift that, that God gives. And there's just a couple of statements that I, I want to tell you about this shepherd king that, that helps us understand the beauty 
of God's love and the lavishness of, of God's love. So the first thing we see about this shepherd king, Jesus Christ, here in verse 3, is that the shepherd king is one who gathers his people. The shepherd king gathers his people. Verse 3, as Micah describes his ministry, he says, He's going to be given up, the people are going to be given up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And so there's this, there's this, this time of anticipation. And then at that time, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now remember, the northern kingdom has been carried away into captivity and they're, they're never to return, at least yet they haven't to this day. And there's going to be a time when this shepherd king is going to be a king who gathers his people who takes those who are far off and brings them near. In Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about this. He's talking about the people of Israel and the Jews and how they've rejected the Messiah and why they've rejected the Messiah and God's continued faithfulness. He talks about we who are Gentiles, how we've been brought into the people of God. And then he tells us this marvelous thing about the future. He says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, lest you be wise, lest you be wise in your own uh, sight, I want, to, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now receive mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. The shepherd king, God loves us by giving us the shepherd king. And the first cool thing about the shepherd king we see, this, the first marvelous thing about the nature of the shepherd king is that he is going to be one who gathers together all of his people, the, the, the brothers, the, the people of Israel who have been scattered far and wide. I believe this is referring to, to they are going to be returned. There's going to be a time of, of massive repentance and placing their faith in the Messiah. And we who are Gentiles are going to believe in the Messiah. And there's going to be a great gathering of the people of God. There's unity that's going to be expressed. And it's all going to be found, as we looked at last week, in the person of Jesus Christ. What else do we see about this shepherd king? What else makes him a, a, an amazing gift? Well, the shepherd king also is one who rules with gentleness. Look at verse 4. We think about the ferocity of the Syrians in Micah chapter 5 verse 4 tells us this about the king. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And so this, this king is not a king who just rules with an iron fist and says, you know, I'm, I'm going to, to break you. And he, he's, he's a shepherd. His ruling is, is gentle. I think there's something within us that, that yearns for a good king for strong leadership. But so often that the type of leadership that we've experienced in our lives is not gentle leadership, right? The leadership that we experience in the church or in the home or in the workplace is a harsh, unforgiving leadership, a, a leadership of, not by, of gentleness, but of, but of hardness. Remember when I was maybe 24, 25 years old, I was sitting with some pastors and we, one, of the, one of the pastors just opened up Ezekiel 34 and said, hey, this is a, a passage that's been speaking to me. And I I'd, I'd never really thought about Ezekiel 34 very deeply. And, and just for some reason, this, this pastor reading these words uh, struck me very powerfully and, and really shaped how I viewed my task as a pastor. Verse 2 of Ezekiel 34, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the people who are supposed to be ruling Israel, and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the sheep, the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up. 
the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. You see there the the type of of shepherding that is a, a harsh and unforgiving shepherding. The amazing thing is that God is not that type of a shepherd. God, with with infinite resources and infinite power and infinite ability, is a shepherd who comes and rules his people with gentleness. He's a Psalm 23 shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, and those words don't strike fear, but, but comfort and joy. Some of you this morning, as you think about your relationship with God, there's, 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 there's sadness and there's, there's fear as you think about a holy God. And of course, there should be a, a sense of awe and fear in that sense, but, but there's, no, there's no sense of, of God's love for you. And what we see here in Micah chapter 5 is that God loves the, the desperate, the weak, the undeserving. And he manifests that love by giving them a shepherd king, a shepherd king who gathers people and, and who rules as a shepherd, not in harshness. We also see here that the shepherd king glorifies and is glorified. Verse 4 of Micah, we read this, that this shepherd comes and he shepherds and it says, he does so in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. And so the, the shepherd king glorifies God, and yet he is also glorified. The glory that he receives is just, and it has to be so because, because he's so valuable. And so the shepherd king is, is glorified, and yet he's glorifying God as well. And so this, the shepherd king is, is glorious, this gift that we receive. Last thing I want you to see about the shepherd king from this text is that he keeps his people safe. He brings his people together. He rules them with gentleness. He's glorified, and the Father is glorified, and he keeps his people secure. He keeps them safe. He brings them peace, shalom. It's one thing to have a gentle ruler. That's nice until the danger comes, right? (laughs) And then you want kind of a, a strong ruler. And, and in the world, it's hard to find a ruler who's both gentle and strong. But, but here, this shepherd, Jesus Christ, embodies all of these characteristics. And it says here in verse 5 that the Assyrian is going to come into our land. He's going to tread in our palaces. And there's a, some think that this was a, a phrase that was sung, kind of a, a war song. We'll raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the swords and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And, and maybe it's talking about that. Maybe it's talking about these people who rule underneath the great shepherd. But the bottom line, the main thing that I want you to see is who is the one who ultimately brings the deliverance. At the end of verse 6, we see it's this Messiah. He, not a bunch of people, but he ultimately shall be the one who delivers us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. The shepherd king brings people together. He creates peace. He rules with gentleness. He's glorified, glorifies the Father. He keeps his people in in peace and security. As we kind of draw this to a close, there's there's one last question that I, that I think is important for you to consider, and that last question that I think is important for you to consider as you, you look at this shepherd king is, how do I receive this shepherd king? How can I be be ruled by a king like this? And and what we see in in our understanding of this the shepherd is that again he doesn't come to those who are deserving; he comes to those who are desperate, to those who are weak, to those who are undeserving. And those who understand their weakness and their need, their lack of worth, receive such a king, who simply cry out in faith, I need you, receive this king. And God's love for you, it's not based upon a moment. I want you to think about that this week. As you think about who you are and who God is in relationship to you, 
understand that God's favor upon you is not based upon a, a moment in your life, a moment of failure. God does not look upon you and, and as he looks at you, see the, the time you messed up four years ago. As you receive this, this great shepherd king, Jesus Christ, the beauty is he's able, as we see in Micah 7, he's able to cast our iniquity into the depths of the sea because he can look on us and, and not see our sin, but see the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you receive the gift of Jesus this Christmas if you haven't already. And then my prayer for you this week is that as God places you in the various places he's going to place you over the Christmas week, as he calls you to interact with your family, with friends, with co-workers, that God would allow you to display God with us. That as people see you interacting with them, that they see the love of God that is poured out into your life. And as the love of God has been poured out in your life, that, that love of God this week and in the coming weeks and the coming months and years would just exude out of you and, and that you would be this, this powerful testimony to the grace of God that has been exhibited in your life. And, and people would look at you, the, the people in your life who are desperate, who are weak, who are undeserving, at least in your eyes, <laughs> would be able to see the love of God. And, and there are people that God is going to bring into your life again this week who you who, who know that they're undeserving or at least know that you think that they are undeserving of your love. And as they see the love of God through you poured out upon them, that they would understand who God loves and how God loves in showing us the beauty of his son, Jesus Christ. It's an amazing opportunity we have before us this week, before us this month, before us the rest of our lives that God grants us to display the love of God to others. And there are going to be times this week for some of us where we're going to be tempted to exempt ourselves. I know that in theory I'm supposed to love the unlovely, but wow, you don't know uncle so-and-so. Wow, I'm sure God understands this one. No, the weak, the desperate, the undeserving uncle so-and-sos, the undeserving co-workers. The love of God has been poured out in us, is manifested in others. That's Micah 5. Those who have turned away from God to idolatry receive the love of God and are called to demonstrate it to others. Let me pray for God's grace in your life this week and in the coming weeks. Father, we, we do pray for your grace. I pray for your grace in my life. That as, as a person who's desperate and weak and undeserving, I would receive your grace, your favor, and I would show that to others as well. Give us, give us your grace as we live out our lives with gospel truth. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.